cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, January 3rd, 2012. You know, I was nervous that I was going to say 2011, you know, just always have to look first of the year, you, you make silly mistakes like that, you know, you write checks and you put 2011 and beginning of the year and anxieties, you know? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And what you're really listening for is for the presentation of Christ, the talk about Christ. Uh, and what I mean is is the really the details, the telling of the story of what he has done for sinners, of what it cost for sinners to be redeemed, to be purchased, to be bought and uh, forgiven by God. Uh, the pardon uh, was not something that didn't cost God something. It cost him dearly. It cost him the life of the Son of God. And uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's all about hearing the gospel, really, what it boils down to, because false doctrine has a way of uh, giving lip service to uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, but then has a weird way of putting it on the shelf and bringing out the new bright, shiny a thing that the pastor or Pastrix is discovered in, in his or her deep study of God's Word that has never been told before. And that's kind of weird, because the faith is once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, the biblical truth is old. It's not new. Uh, if if somebody's coming along with some new, bright, shiny doctrine, um, they're not bringing you the truth. They're bringing you something different. And so uh, why do we do this? Because, well, really, uh, because uh, people's souls are at stake. False doctrines send people to hell. False gospels send people to hell. Uh, false faith in a false object of faith uh, is idolatry. Uh, it, it, it's idolatry without even the, you know, in the olden days, let's put it this way. At least people had the courage of their convictions. If they were going to make up their own God, well, 
golly, they were going to go out and pay a craftsman to make a god for them out of wood or stone or marble or gold or silver. Or maybe they would learn the trade themselves and do it. Nowadays, uh, people are just really lazy in their idolatry. And so it's like, I don't want to go through all the trouble and cost of having to make a god. And I know, I'll just make up my own god, and what I'll do is I'll hijack. I'll hijack uh the 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 real god the, uh, jesus and i'll i'll rename you know I'll, I'll keep the name jesus but i'll completely redefine him reimagine him restructure him rethink the gospel let's make it something that's just palatable to my postmodern ears or something like that and the reality is is that that's idolatry just as much as making a, a you know taking a piece of wood carving it into the form of an image and then bowing down before it it's the same thing it's just Without all the, 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 well, the hard work of going out and learning the craft to actually, you know, work in wood or stone or things like that. Anyway, so uh, this is our first, uh, first day back for the brand new year. I, I had to take a little bit of time off. Um, it, it, as you know, if you follow fi Fighting for the Faith, then you know that, um, you know, I left because, uh, you know, I, well, the, the holiday was upon us and, and, uh, had some family, uh, things to tend to, uh, namely, uh, my brother's brain tumor. And, uh, I, I've got a lot of a report, but not a full report for you. So l let me kind of bring you up to speed on what's going on with my brother. Uh, my brother's surgery went very well. Um, some doctors who are familiar with the case, um, including my uh, my stepdad, who is an emergency room physician, describe Mark's uh, rapid recovery, ability to go home uh, 36, 37, 38 hours after he was uh, uh, you know had the you know he was opened up and in uh, to have the brain tumor removed, he was able to go home that quickly. He, in fact, he was able to attend Christmas service. On Christmas Day at his uh, small little church, uh, and uh, so I, you know, so let's just put it this way: everything at the moment looks positive, but yeah, you're sitting there going, yeah, but you said but, yeah, I know, I know, I said but, and you know that's the thing about that word is but has a really bad habit of erasing the things you said before it. Uh, the thing is, is that we don't have all the data, and the reason why we don't have all the data is because. Well, none of the guys who work in the labs were working in the labs between Christmas and New Year's. And as a result of it, we still haven't gotten the pathology report on my brother's tumor. Now, the doctor who performed the um, the, the surgery, uh, basically, he's of the opinion that, you know, from just a cursory look through the uh, through the brain tumor that he removed... Uh, which, by the way, uh, it was, you know, thank the Lord for this. I mean, it's it's actually amazing uh, that it went down this way. Uh, the, the brain tumor was sitting literally, you know, you, you take the, you know, the, the skull cap off and it was sitting right there at the top of the brain. And he did not have to cut into Mark's brain tissue at all. And uh, so, uh, you know, but uh, they removed it. He removed it, and his cursory opinion is is that it looked like it was cancerous, but he didn't believe it was very far along in its growth progression, things like that. And so uh, he was optimistic that they caught it at a very early stage, and if that holds to be true, when we get finally get the pathology report, if that holds to be true, then 
then it sounds like um, you know, uh, you know a, a regimen of chemotherapy and uh, and close watch by the doctors to make sure nothing comes back. Um, and uh, Mark is out of the woods, and in which case it really does seem miraculous, miraculous. And uh, and God using uh, the miracle of modern medicine to uh, you know to basically take something that you know twenty thirty years ago would have been a death sentence and you know turn it around and almost have it to be an, an outpatient surgery. I mean, who would have thought that opening up someone's skull would be an outpatient surgery? So that's where we're at right now. Uh, my brother did get his uh, staples taken out today. I think he had fifty of them and. Uh, <laughs> Yikes. So uh, anyway, those of you who've been praying, thank you very much for your prayers. And uh, we give glory to God. We we thank God for hearing the prayers and for answering the prayers according to his will. Now, I would be saying the same thing if the doctors said, yeah, it's stage four, uh, pack your bags, get your will in order, It's you're out of here. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of time. Here's some morphine and make yourself comfortable. Even if the doctor had said that, we would still be thanking God, knowing that his will is being done. Because here's the deal, God's favor uh, for humans is not contingent upon whether or not they receive favorable information from their medical doctors. Um, the reality is, is that each and every one of us, me included, you included, all of us, we have a date with death. And, uh, and it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be 20 years from now, 50 years from now. Each of us, it's going to be something different. And the only thing that's possible, that could possibly interrupt that and make it so that you don't depart this earth via the normal means by which everybody has departed the earth over the last, you know, really since the creation, would be if Christ returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead. At which point we will be gathered to him in the air. In the twinkling of an eye, our mortal bodies will be transformed into our new eternal bodies. And uh, and it's all, it's a, and this can be fantastic. But even if my brother had been uh, diagnosed as, you know, stage four terminal, which he hasn't, uh, you know, any, anything like that, we would have still thanked God for everything. Why? Because I, I can say with confidence that uh, on the day in which God decides that my brother's days on this earth are finished, when he breathes his last, when his eyes close and stop seeing what's here in this temporal and passing away world, he will have his eyes opened, and the first person he will see is his great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, there to take him to the heavenly kingdom. That's what's going to happen. And so one of the things that the Bible teaches us Christians to understand is that everything here is temporal. It's passing. It's not forever. And so there's no point in trying to, well, how do they say it? Um, the, we come into the world with nothing and we leave with nothing. And uh, at least nothing in the sense of money or goods or 
you know, anything that can be acquired here on earth to help us with our sojourn here. And that's what it is. This is a sojourn. The only thing we can take with us into the heavenly kingdom are really it's friends and family and loved ones. And that's accomplished through the preaching of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, sinners like you and like me, that proclaiming the good news that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. And so, you know, we have the great responsibility and privilege of going out and being ridiculed, if you would, for proclaiming such a foolish gospel. The foolish gospel that, that God was hanging dead on a cross, having been beaten and scourged. And the reason why he was hanging dead on the cross, having been beaten and scourged and crucified and nailed there, was because he was drinking down to the dregs the full wrath of God for you and for me. And so my brother believes that gospel. He's been brought to repentance of his sins and faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And so he has an eternal hope. And so, you know, it's it's been an interesting uh it's been an interesting experience watching my brother go through this. And so, um your continued prayers are in order and uh, we will praise God for whatever the result may be, even if the result is just a temporary reprieve. Because ultimately that's what it is. Even if it turns out that they're able to treat this, the cancer goes away, yeah, my brother won't be here um, in 50, 60 years. Chances are good that he won't <laughs> if Christ doesn't return. And so this is a temporary reprieve. And we'll pray that God's will be done. Because ultimately, that's really what it's all about, God's will being done. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Fifth. Oh, you know, by the way, this reminds me. Um, I was able to spend uh, part of the holidays uh, with my son. My son, uh, uh, he was able to get some leave, and uh, he came into town, and we spent some time writing. And we are, like I said, we're working on a Marty Python album. However, we are changing the name of Marty Python. Uh, you know, having done the research, the name is too close to Monty Python. And what we want to do is we, we wanted to do is come up with a name that um, – Still, you know, paid um, you know homage, if you would, to uh, Monty Python because uh, you know obviously uh, their humor, their wit, and uh, the way they do things uh, has had a profound influence on the humor that we write for the satirical sketches that we write. And so, uh, what we're gonna we're gonna be renaming our troupe, if you would, our comedy troupe, and it's kind of a bizarre name. But work with me here for a second. Uh, the name of our comedy troupe is going to be Max Holiday's. Birdcage Theater, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater. And the album we're working on is entitled Church de Soleil and uh, the Budgie Cuts Part 2. That's the name of the album, Church de Soleil, the Budgie Cuts Part 2. And got to tell you, we, the, we were crying. We were laughing so hard at some of the stuff that we've written. And uh, I'm really excited for what we're working on here. And our goal is to have the album recorded and finished and in, in, in final production before my son is deployed again, uh, my son is uh, he, he is uh, part of the nuclear submarine fleet, and uh, he's uh, stationed out in uh, in Bangor, Washington, out there in the Puget Sound. So, 
Um, yeah, so that well, that's what we're working on right now, and so you know, I'll keep you posted on that. Uh, look, your, look in your email. You should be getting uh, if, if you haven't already got it. You should be getting shortly an email for uh, for those of you who uh, financially supported Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio during the month of December. Uh, finally got the kinks worked out of our uh, uh, Kindle EPUB edition of. Uh, uh, CFW Walther's proper distinction of law and gospel. If you haven't already got the email, just be patient. Uh, we're in the process of sending them out. We're sending them out in batches, so you should be getting that, that email shortly. Um, you know, anything else that I want to talk about here regarding that? No. With so, let's talk about what we're going to do on the program today. Okay, now if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that uh, I talked about one of the things we're going to talk about today, and this is going to be during the sermon review. Um, we I've been talking about on the program this uh, seeker-driven tendency towards narcissistic eisegesis. Well, have you ever heard of narcissistic evangelism? Yeah, um, you thought narcissistic eisegesis was bad. Well, in our sermon review today, in hour number two, I'm kind of doing this backwards. In hour number two, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna be playing a sermon from uh, Spirit of St. Louis Church in Arnold, Missouri, uh, Pastor Tom Skiles. And uh, literally, uh, this is a sermon regarding evangelism from a seeker-driven guy. And the only way I could describe it is narcissistic evangelism. Yeah, just go with the title. In, uh, details will be forthcoming in hour number two. You don't want to miss the sermon review. That's all I'm saying. Okay, so there's there's a ton of stories that we can talk about here. Um, one of the things, my Google Reader is flooded, flooded flooded with end-of-the-world 2012 stuff. I mean, ay-ay-ay. I mean, I just want to pound my head. You know, I feel like we've got a whole other Harold Camping thing coming up. Um, you know, supposedly the end of the world is December 21st, 2012. But don't worry. I I, I want to let you all that, that know that in the Pirate Christian Radio uh, Theological Innovations Department and Prayer Innovations Department, we're in the process of working on a high-powered shadow go backwards prayer. Now, this is a highly experimental prayer, and uh, I can't say that I can't give you all the details regarding this highly experimental a version of the shadow go backwards prayer but we're pretty sure that it's audacious enough to to totally have humanity skip right over december 21st 2012 so that you know we'll just come flying into the 22nd without the world ending yeah that that's how audacious we are so i just want to let you know but i do need to let you all know that um th because this is a highly experimental prayer um, I can't recommend it to the general public yet. It, 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 in fact, it's only mostly safe. It's not totally safe. It's only mostly safe. So, anyway, just uh, keep, you know, keep listening to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio throughout the year, and uh, we'll let you know about the progress of this cutting edge uh, theological development that we're working on. Um, so here's what we're gonna do. Yeah, you know, rather than talking about what we're gonna talk about in the first hour, we, you know, I'm looking at my time here. I thought maybe we could just dive right into it. I mean, it is the beginning of the year, right? It's the beginning of 2012, right? Well, that being the case, I mean, this is the time of the year when we get prophecies and predictions regarding, you know, what's coming up in in the in the forthcoming year, and all of these uh, prophecies and predictions and decrees and things are all free uh, via the Patricia King Gang. So with that, let's um, dive into the program proper. Mm 
Okay, so uh, via ExtremeProphetic.com, I've got uh, audio from a video by a guy by the name of Dr. Mike Maiden. Dr. Mike Maiden. I believe this is his maiden appearance. <clears throat> Sorry for the pun there. Um, this is Dr. Mike Maiden's maiden appearance here at Fighting for the Faith, and he's part of the Patricia King gang. And uh, you can find his stuff, by the way, if you want to look at his website. You can find it at cftn.com, cftn.com. But he made a video for Patricia King entitled Prophetic Decrees for 2012. Um, and, you know, again, this is a service that we offer as far as audience enhancement and, you know, and multiplication to help get the word out regarding this prophetic decrees and things like that. So being that it's the beginning of the new year, 2012, I mean, if you want to, you know, look at the uh, cosmic entrails and see if you can divine the uh, the upcoming prophetic tea leaves, well, I mean, what a better way to do this, you know, at the beginning of a new year than with Dr. Mike Maiden from Extreme Prophetic. Here we go. What a year 2011 has been, a year of dynamic change for so many of us. And also a lot of hurtful experiences or even chaotic environments. But I've got awesome news for you. In the midst of all this change and chaos and even confusion or pain, God has been working a work of grace, preparing us, preparing you and I for what he has for us in our destiny. Our Wow. I mean, this is comforting stuff right here. Um, yeah, because I don't know about you all, but uh, 2011 was a bit challenging. It was it was a bit difficult as years go. Um, you know, if, if I were to look back across my life, you know, my 43 years on planet Earth, I'd say, yeah, 2011 probably is up there in the top five of most difficult years of my life. And, um, boy, it's good to know that Dr. Mike Maiden here, um, he's been talking to God, and, and, and God has revealed to him personally that uh, God's been working behind the scenes, you know, regarding something to do with my destiny for 2012. Phew, yeah, this is good news. It's his plan and his kingdom. 2012 is a year of established placement for God's people in their mountains, in their anointings, in their purpose, in their callings. So I'm going to be placed in my mountain. Yeah, but I'm a pirate, and I, I work from a pirate cave. Um, yeah, we, pirates don't generally hang out on mountains in their destinies as we go from 11 which means change or confusion or pre preparation we go to 12 2012 god is going to establish his kingdom in our lives our families our businesses our churches what does that mean he's going to establish his kingdom in my life um okay i'm kind of just thinking through the sentence god is going to establish his kingdom in my life yeah, it's coming up completely blank. Yeah, any of you know what that's supposed to mean? Our ministries, our destinies, he's moving us as pieces on the chessboard, getting ready for a triumphant season of apostolic advancement. And that means... Triumphant season of apostolic advancement. Wow, sounds amazing. I mean, I wonder if it'll be covered on the newsreels. God's going to help you find your place and find the purpose he has for you in that place and then endow you with more authority and favor you've ever seen before. There's an uncommon favor and an undefeatable authority when you find the place God has for you and when you... So God's going to give me an undefeatable authority? Uh, what would I do with that? Um... Do I use that when I'm playing cribbage against my wife? Yes, darling, I've got an undefeatable authority. <laughs> 
So uh, don't even think about calling Muggins on me because I have an undefeatable authority and I'm using it in cribbage today. Enter the purpose that God has for your life. Get ready. You're about to be endowed with favor and authority to yeah. accomplish the will of God, to see the work of God, to see the kingdom of God advance. Right. And in spite of all that's happened, I promise you this. The Bible says concerning this year, maybe the past several years, God will work all things together for your good because you love him and because of his purpose that he will never give up on. And yeah, it sounds like a misuse of that Jeremiah twenty nine eleven verse. As long as you're alive, God will always direct your life and focus it, point it, and manifest it to fulfill your purpose. There's a reason why you've survived all that you've been through. Yeah, you know, weird that you talk about my purpose because you know, I'm beginning to think that my purpose is to expose heretics like you. It's kind of comforting that God's behind me on that. And he's going to give me some kind of an author undefeatable authority for apostolically, you know, putting guys like you down. <laughs> cool. It's so that the will of God might be perfected, might be performed, that you might experience that thing God's made you for. Next year is a year of purpose. It's a year of advancement. It's a yeah. year of progress. It's yeah. a year of supernatural fruitfulness. And it's a year of great victories. Old battles will be suddenly won. Old pains and old diseases, long-term... Yeah, have you noticed that this is kind of a one-size-fits-all prophecy? Weird, huh? Yeah, it's so... Okay, let's see if I got this straight. Okay, D doctor, you know, because, I mean, you are a doctor of some kind. Um, doctor Maiden, um, okay, so this is a one-size-fits-all uniprophecy. And everybody who's apparently hearing this uniprophecy, because it's one-size-fits-all, everybody who's hearing this, everybody is going to have victory and progress and density and and purpose and and an undefeatable authority to apostolically progress and slay things and um hmm yeah you know, correct me if i'm wrong but isn't it kind of odd that the that a uni uniprophecy unibrow no not unibrow but you know the, a, a one size fits all prophecy would somehow all that's all good news for everybody who's hearing this it's weird isn't it hmm Okay. Sufferings will be conquered by the kingdom of God. God's not just advancing us. God's going to pour out his spirit in a way we've never seen as his people. Yeah, I've heard that before. Man, God's going to pour out his, his, yeah, his power, his presence, his anointing in ways we've never seen before. Um, and then we end up seeing the same thing. Get ready because it's, it's, we're about to go into fast speed. We're about to go into an accelerated pace of the fulfillment of God's plan. Yeah, you know, isn't it weird, you know, like the, for the last six, seven years that I've been watching videos from Patricia King, every single year we're going to have an accelerated, pat, fast pace, thing, and it always kind of stays the same. Plan for his people in the last days. It's going to get better and better. The world get darker and darker, but the church more glorious. The church bright. Glorious? Is that a word? Brighter and brighter. Your life is about to ex uh, experience a great change, and that change is for the good. Get ready. Next year is going to be a great year in your life as God's child. Well, there you go. It's everything's coming up roses. So, I mean, if you were worried about 2012, if you had a tough 2011 and you were thinking maybe 2012 is going to be, you know, one of those, you know, tough beef jerky, hard to chew on kind of years. Well, forget that. I mean, it's going to be a cakewalk. 
Everything's going to come up roses. Everything's going to go your way. I mean, you go buy your lotto tickets now. That's all I can say. <sighs> yeah, there we go. One size fits all Utah prophecy, and it's everything's coming up roses. Call me skeptical, but I just don't think he's really hearing from God, um, like at all. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you are in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build a God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your God is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is, too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their God. Keep more of your money in your pocket. 
Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. You need to know that, especially if your pastor isn't preaching Christ and is preaching something else. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And if you would like to support us financial, which we'd really like, uh, then you can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of the two friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And just to let you all know, uh, our crew members, when we are finally done with our new album, the uh, the Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater album, uh, Church de Soleil, The Budgie Cuts Part 2, uh, when we're finished with that, uh, everybody who's a member of our crew uh, will have access to download that at no additional cost. Just to, to let you all know, that's what our intentions are. So, that, you know, there's perks to being a crew member, just to let you all know that. Okay. So moving along here, uh, next story that I want to talk about. Y'all remember when, uh, well, it wasn't that long ago, uh, atheist Christopher Hitchens died. Now, I don't have Christopher Hitchens update music because I don't foresee that we're going to be doing a lot of Christopher Hitchens updates. But uh, one of the things that came out in the aftermath of his death was a conversation, audio from a conversation from January of last year. So this is from a year ago. Uh, that uh, Christopher Hitchens, he had a conversation with the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Sewell. Uh, she is a, a liberal um, Unitarian Universalist type. And uh, holy smokes, all I could say is after I heard this audio, it's like, oh, wow. He totally schooled this liberal Unitarian Universalist on what Christianity is, which actually makes his death even that much more tragic because... Believe me when I tell you, Christopher Hitchens knew the, what the gospel was. He didn't want to believe it. But this audio is fascinating to listen to, to say the least. Uh, here we go. To fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm, I'm a liberal Christian, um, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Well, only in this respect, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, 
the Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and that by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven. You are really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> he was right. If you deny any of that, you are in no, you, in no meaningful sense of the word Krishna. Are you even a Christian? And that's coming from an atheist. How come the atheists can understand this about liberals? I, I disagree with that. I consider myself a Christian. I believe in the Jesus story as story, as narrative, and Jesus as a, a, a person whose life is exemplary and that, that I want to follow. But I do not believe in all that stuff that I just uh, just outlined. Oh, I, I simply have to tell you that uh, every, every major Christian thinker and theologian has said that if without the resurrection and without the forgiveness of sins, what I call the vicarious redemption, um, it's meaningless. In fact, it isn't, it, if it, without that, it isn't even a nice story. It, even if it's true, which, by the way, I take leave to doubt, I don't think there's any evidence at all for the narrative of the life of Jesus or the various contradictory narratives, rather, of his life. It doesn't really matter to me whether it's true, uh, literally. It matters to me whether the story has efficacy for my life. Well, and it does it, well that's what I meant to say. I mean, when... when um, C.S. Lewis, for example, says, man I don't particularly admire as a writer, but he did have some moral courage. He said, if this man was not the son of God, then his teachings were evil. Because if you, if you don't believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and that you can get to it by the way, the truth, and the life offered by the gospel, then there's no excuse for telling people, take no thought for the morrow, for example, as he did. There's no excuse for telling people that they don't have to practice thrift, care about their children, they, uh, they must leave everything and follow him. That would be a wicked thing to say. It would be like Jim Jones if he didn't sincerely believe that the story and the preaching was true. Well, it, was, I don't, I don't it would be evil nonsense. I don't believe uh, that, I don't believe that C.S. Lewis was correct in saying that. I, I think that he's, he's very uh, conservative in his, his views of theological views. Let me, let me go, let me go someplace else. Uh, when I was in seminary, I was particularly drawn to the work of theologian um, Paul Tillich, and he shocked people by describing the traditional God, as you might, as a matter of fact, he, he described God as an invincible tyrant. Now, instead, he refers to God, in his words, as the ground of being. This is Tillich's response to, say, Freud's belief, uh, and you referred to Freud in your book several times, that religion is mere you know, wish fulfillment and comes from the human sphere of death. Um, what do you think of Tillich's concept of God as this uh, ground of our being? Well, I, I, I would classify that under the heading of statements that have no meaning at all. <laughs> right. It's a statement that has no meaning. At all. And he's right. Christianity, as you remember, is really founded by St. Paul, not by Jesus. And St. Paul says very clearly, in more than one place, that if it, if it is not true that Jesus Christ uh, rose from the dead, or rather was the Christ and rose from the dead, then we, the Christians, are of all people the most unhappy. Without that, it's meaningless. Everyone from St. Paul to Cardinal Manning to Lewis, to my most recent debate partner, uh, Pastor Douglas Wilson, says, if if that's not true, it's all at best blather, but actually worse than blather. There would be no morality to it, whatever. How could you dare say to people that uh, property and progress and inquiry and thrift and all these things don't count, that all you need is, is to throw your belief on the sacrifice of a human being and in that way uh, conquer death? If, that's, if none of that's true, and you seem to say it isn't, I have no quarrel with you. 
And you're not going to come to my door trying to convince me either, nor are you trying to get a tax break from the government to have it preached, nor are you trying to <laughs> have it taught to my children in school. I'm content. If all Christians were like you, I wouldn't have to write the book. Well, probably not. Because I... So apparently uh, Christopher Hitchens wasn't threatened by liberal Christians. It was the ones who believed the story. I agree with almost everything that you say. Uh, but, but I still consider myself a Christian and a person of faith. So I think it's very... What, what person of, you consider yourself a Christian. The word has, has no meaning. Person of faith. Faith in what? Very interesting. Faith in what? Do you mind if I ask you a question? Yes. Uh, faith in the resurrection. Uh you know, I, I don't believe in the resurrection, literally. I do believe... In uh, this is a woman who has been to seminary and is supposedly a pastrix. ...in new life. The way you believe in it. The way I believe in the resurrection is I believe that one can go from a death in this life in the sense of being dead to the world and dead to other people and can be resurrected to new life. And when I preach about Easter and the resurrection, that is the way I go with it. In a metaphorical sense, I do not talk about a literal resurrection. I don't believe in that. So, so that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Well, then about. you are, I, I hate to say it, we've hardly been introduced, but I, I would hate to seem um, too critical, but then you are simply living on the inheritance of, as a Christian, a monstrous fraud that was practiced for many centuries when that was preached to millions of people as, as the literal truth, well, as the only ground, as you would put it, of being. Well, of course, people uh, believe what they need to believe, and earlier earlier in time, people believe all kinds of things, but times change, and, you know, people's beliefs change. Um, I, I don't believe that you have to be um, fundamentalist and literalist to be a Christian, and I think that... What's the point of being a Christian, then? The Apostle Paul disagrees with you, lady, and uh, quite forcefully, too. If Christ is not raised, we are foolish. We're still dead in our sins. We're going to hell. The whole thing is a fraud if Jesus Christ hasn't been bodily raised from the dead. So don't sit there and say, well, I've come up with a brand new meaning for the word Christian. And my new shiny meaning means that it doesn't matter if Jesus really rose bodily from the dead. Here's what it boils down to. Uh, you know, again, it is a tragedy, tragedy that Christopher Hitchin goes to the grave an unbeliever. It is an absolute tragedy. And it's clear he studied and really looked hard at the Christian claims. And here's what it boils down to. If Christ Jesus has not been raised from the dead bodily, then Christopher Hitchens is right. If Jesus' body can be found and it can be definitively proved that it's the body of Jesus Christ, Christianity is poppycock. There's no point in redefining anything. There's no, there's no meaning to the word Christian anymore. In fact, if they find the body of Jesus Christ, I'm out. There's no way I'm going to sit here and continue to defend, defend a lie. And that's what liberalism does. It tries to make a way to be palatable to the world. Okay, you don't believe in miracles. Well, I don't believe in miracles either. And I'll redefine the word Christian so that it doesn't it doesn't include the bodily resurrection of Jesus because that's just silly. And you know, <clears throat> if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, read First Corinthians fifteen. Your faith is in vain.
And we've made God out to be a liar because we're claiming, Christianity claims, that God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. If that didn't happen, the whole thing is a fraud, and it, nobody should believe in Jesus for nothing. You do. I think you're something of a fundamentalist, actually. Well, I'm sorry, I think a fundamentalist simply means those who think that the Bible is a serious book and should be taken seriously. You know? I take it very seriously. I have my grandmother's Bible and I still read it. Right, I take it very seriously. But the word seriously is you know, means not as seriously as a fundamentalist. But I don't take it as literal truth. I take it as metaphorical truth. And I think the stories, the narrative... So it's Aesop's fables. ...is what's important. Well, then I would move to my the challenge that I've made in all the debates that I've had with some people of faith which you say still includes you, Tom Ford, which is this. I mean, you have to show me what, what there is ethically in, in any religion that can't be duplicated by um, humanism. In other right. words, can you name me a single moral action performed or moral statement uttered by a person of faith that couldn't be just as well pronounced or, or undertaken by... Well, I think it's. I think you're quite right. I think, I think you're... Yeah, by the way, let me... Uh, um, sounds weird here, but I want to flesh out Christopher Hitchens' point just a little bit more. One of the things I've said recently, and I'll keep hammering on this point, is that if you believe Christianity is about making your life better, you know, you're, you're getting pragmatically better results, or, you know, you're, you're experiencing some kind of moral improvement in life, that's really the, the gist of it. If, if that's really the true claim as to whether or not Christianity is true, is what a difference it's made in your life, um, then you're making a case for polytheism because uh, the morals that are found in Christianity can be found in other religions too. So yeah, that's kind of I'm building on that point. Absolutely right. Uh, however, religion does inspire some people. Yeah. So there you go. Religion inspires some people. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, I feel inspired. But isn't it weird? Isn't it weird that the same Christianity we're hearing from this Pastrix, it, it eerily sounds similar to the same kind of Christianity we're getting from Brian McLaren, guys like Rob Bell, and others. Yeah, it's when, you know, and that's the thing. You have to listen really carefully to those guys because in many senses it's, it's, a, you know, it's what they omit and refuse to talk about, refuse to affirm. That uh, that you know clues you into the fact that these guys are liberals, not Christians. So there you go. Interesting conversation, worth passing along. Okay, next section here. I, I you know I have not done a lot of Beth Moore work, but unfortunately, after hearing this, I know for sure I'm going to have to spend a little bit more time on Beth Moore. Uh, the reason why is because there 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 be something wrong in this woman's theology, and I'm going to play for you audio from a video clip, uh, you know, from a DVD teaching series made available by Lifeway, the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, um, entitled "Believing God." This is from session five of uh, the DVD uh, set on uh, "Believing God," and well, to say that. Beth Moore is making statements that sound eerily like the same kind of weird things that we're getting from uh, the Patricia King gang. Well, the, the, that would be an understatement. Yeah, listen in to this. Goes on under a little portion that calls, under a little portion that is called the same old, same old. It says this. 
Religious energy may be experienced through new forms of music or dramatic architecture, but there is a noteworthy staleness to the faith experience of most Christians. I'd like to suggest to you that maybe a staleness comes from the fact that we have attempted to take the faith out of our faith. But here's what I want to say to you. I don't want to beg to differ with people that are 10 times smarter than I am. But I want to say to you, I see something different than that. I see God doing something huge in the body of Christ. I I've heard this kind of talk before um, from uh, the, the guys who uh, do the secret-driven hostile takeover strategy. Um, in their conversations regarding Blackaby and experiencing God. So you see God doing something huge in the body of Christ. Really? Okay. Where'd you get this idea from, Beth? Do not know why I have had the privilege to get to travel around, see one church after another, one group of believers after another, interdenominationally all over this country, but I have gotten to see something that I think is huge. Okay. And I'll also suggest to you, I am not the only one. Okay, so you've seen something huge, and you're not the only one seeing it, okay. And tonight, I'm going to do my absolute best to illustrate to you something that God showed me sitting out on that back porch. What? <laughs> you're going to illustrate to us something that God showed you while you were sitting on your back porch? Uh-oh. He put a picture, I've explained to you before, I'm a very visual person. So he speaks to me very often and putting a picture in my head. And it was as if I was raised up looking down on a community. So God put a picture in your head while you were sitting on your back porch and you had an out-of-body experience looking down on a community. Uh-oh. As I saw the church... In that particular dimension, certainly not all dimensions, not even many, but in what we will discuss tonight, the church as Jesus sees it in a particular dimension. So you got to see the church the way Jesus sees the church in a particular dimension. Would this be the Twilight Zone dimension? What are you talking about? Before class, for you online, I'll explain to you that I have asked some volunteers to come forward representing churches in a small town. Okay, now, so apparently she's going to try to help us visualize this thing that God apparently showed her directly. Now, your own church may not be represented up here tonight. Your own church may not be by denomination on this stage, but all in the world we're doing here is giving a representative of all the rest. So what I'm going to ask you to do is that if you were appointed to be a volunteer this evening, would you make your way onto this stage? The volunteers are making their way up to the stage so that we can uh, experience, apparently, the same uh, picture of the body of Christ the way Jesus showed it to um, Beth Moore directly uh, as a out-of-body picture uh, while she was sitting on her back porch. I want you to think back as you were in your homework this week, which I just know you're doing. I just know you are. I want you to remember that we called a place by a fictitious name. We called it Less Than Land. I want you to picture 
that you have come with me to the town or to the village of less than land. And I want to introduce you to what these churches are. What I've done in this particular class that makes this group so special, and I'm loving this about you who are online, we are a very interdenominational group. And so I've literally gotten to position people from these denominations and from these backgrounds into these groups. So that just thrills me. So this part, we're not playing. However, I have just made up the name from familiar names of churches that I've seen through the years. Right over here to my right, you see First United Methodist Church of Less Than Land. Liberal denomination. Right behind them, you would find, just down the street, just across the street, really, you've got Christ the Redeemer Lutheran Church. Every single one of my sisters in this area attends a Lutheran church, which thrills me. These all attend a Methodist church. I can't tell you how I love that kind of diversity. What I've asked these ladies to do right here, now this makes it a little bit different, because they do go to different churches. But what I've asked them to represent tonight to us is an African-American church that we're going to call Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. Is that good? Did I do good? Yes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right back here, I want you to meet St. Anne's Catholic Church of Less Than Land. Hmm. Yeah. Um, apparently, Jesus doesn't care what you believe about him. These or the gospel. Ladies, it doesn't matter what gospel you believe, everybody's in. Come, every single one of them, although they don't go to one Catholic church, every single... So Jesus showed you this picture of a syncretistic body of Christ? single one of them attend a Catholic church, probably right here in Houston. And I am so thrilled that they are here. What I've asked my sisters to do here, actually, they represent many different churches, but they represent one church in our midst tonight. These are our sisters that attend different charismatic churches in the city. But tonight, they attend Abundant Life Church. Is that good? good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the John 1010 10 Out of Context Church. Okay. Glory to God. I am so glad you're here. <laughs> I am so glad you're here. So apparently, doctrine doesn't matter. Welcome to the churches of Lesson Land. Can you give them a hand? I'd prefer not to. What I'd like to suggest to you is the reason why there are so many that say over and over, and I've read it and so have you, has anybody else been discouraged besides me when they read things that say the church is declining, we're in terrible failure, all these horrible things are happening, we're being taken over by the other world religions, I am not saying we better not take notice. We need a lot... By the way, this was recorded in 2002. ...to help. You think in the last 10 years things have gotten better in the body of Christ? What I am saying is that God is doing something huge in the church today, and I don't want us to miss it. Uh, it's been 10 years. Uh, do you what was the huge thing that God was doing again? Is it all bad news? Hardly. Something huge is going on out there, but let me tell you. Weird. That's the same message we were hearing from Dr. Maiden. It's, it's God's doing something huge. Why we don't see it very easily. God is not working according to our programs, and we're fearful. Can I point something out here? Um, she's not preaching from a biblical text. At this moment, she is spending an entire time teaching this entire multi-denominational meeting of women uh, to... She's teaching from um, vision she received from Jesus on her back porch. Curious about it. 
We're furious. Because we get a plan going, we get a program going, and then God does not read the notes of our committee meeting. And because it's not happening in the way that man thinks it should, we think nothing is happening in the body of Christ. And I'm going to tell you something, sister. I beg to differ tonight. I beg to differ. I want you to go with me to point number two. The common denominator will not be human leadership. So this big thing that God's supposedly doing, which is from 10 years ago, um, is not going to be led by human leadership. It won't be a certain pastor or certain pastors or speakers or authors. It's going to have nothing to do with human leadership. I mean, it's 10 years later. We're 10 years from the time when this was first published. Uh, can you look back and tell us what now was the big thing that God was doing? I mean, I'm curious. God's going to appoint whoever he wants, but he's not going to let it be one or two. That's not the way he works. He, they would end up getting the credit. He's not going to have it happen that way. So it's not going to be about human leadership. It's not going to be denomination. No. So this thing that God, that Jesus showed you on your back porch, picture-wise, you know, how Christ sees the body of Christ in the particular dimension and that somehow is hooked into the big thing that God's supposedly doing, or at least has been doing for the past 10 years, um, has nothing to do with denominations because Jesus doesn't care what people believe about him. Hmm. No one denomination, hear this clearly, is going to lead us in revival. We, we are so shocked to know this, but God does not pay one iota's attention to all these signs on all these doors. He could... Yeah, um, I think he cares about the, what's in their catechisms or in their th doctrinal statements or what creeds they confess and things like that. I agree. Uh, God probably doesn't care what's, what the sign says on the door, but the sign can generally give you a ballpark as to what it is that the theology that's being preached from the pulpit is. Don't you think? Not care less. Isn't it weird that she's, you know, got the Roman Catholics there? Yes. Now, I'm not against denominationalism. I attend a denominational church. But I want to be a woman of the word. I believe we go where we're called to go. We go, we go where our gifts are fitted into that congregation and where their gifts supply something that we lack. But our revival will not be about denomination. It will not be about ethnicity. So there's some kind of revival that God wants. Did, did he pull it off? I mean, this is 10 years out later, you know. The God's doing a big thing, you know. The denominator will not be ethnicity. It will not be color. Or, this is a very important blank, it will not be, lastly, about giftedness. It will not be about a certain spiritual gift. Well, I'm glad that uh, the, the coming revival that Jesus showed you will have nothing to do with anybody having a gift. You do not have to be... One who has received some kind of speaking or teaching gift to be used. Again, she's exegeting a vision she received. Great. Claims to have received it directly from Jesus on her back porch. Out-of-body experience looking down on less than land. In the body of Christ in the latter days and raised up a mighty warrior. It will have nothing to do with a particular kind of giftedness in the Holy Spirit. None of those things. 
will have anything to do with it. And we're looking for that. We are looking inside certain church walls and saying, because we don't see what we want to see, because our programs don't appear to be working, nothing is happening, and the church is on a terrible decline. I'd like to suggest to you that is not true. Yeah, may I suggest to you that uh, the fact that we got a woman exegeting a dream or vision that she claimed to have received directly from Jesus is actually proof of the decline that she's denying is existing in the church? I mean, I hate to point out the obvious, but um, yeah, uh, here she's denying some kind of decline in the church. And just what she's doing and what she's saying and what she's exegeting is actually like red flashing siren type of evidence that the decline that she's denying is actually right there sitting in front of us. Weird. Anyway, uh, I just want to point out one more thing before we go to the um, break. Uh, from a story from the uh, the Mail Online, I may have covered this a while ago, but this was written by Simon Caldwell on July 11th of 2007. So... Uh, this document now is, uh, you know, is almost five years old. But uh, the, <clears throat> the headline reads, "Protestants aren't proper Christians," says Pope. Uh, yeah, I don't understand why uh, why people in the SBC, like Beth Moore and others, are trying to syncretize with Rome. Uh, when the Pope, uh, when he speaks, he, he speaks for all of the Catholics. This is. Um, you know, this is something that Catholics have to pay attention to. And so Simon Caldwell writes, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth declared yesterday that Christian denominations other than his own were not true churches and their holy orders have no value. Protestant leaders immediately responded by saying the claims were offensive and would hurt efforts to promote ecumenicism. <laughs> I wonder if... If uh, Beth Moore was one of them. Anyway, uh, Roman Catholic Anglican relations are already strained over the Church of England's plans to ordain homosexuals and women as bishops. And the claims came in a document from a Vatican watchdog, which was approved by the Pope. It said the branches of Christianity formed after the split with Rome at the Reformation could not be called churches in their proper sense because they broke with a succession of popes who dated back to St. Peter. And as a result, it went on, Protestant churches have no sacramental priesthood, effectively reaffirming the controversial Catholic position that Anglican holy orders are worthless. So do you think that uh, Pope Benedict XVI believes for a second that um, Beth Moore is a Christian minister, teacher of the gospel? Yeah, um weird that um, Jesus apparently showed her some bigger thing that was going on. And this was 10 years ago, so my question is, you know, 10 years later, I mean, did, what did it turn out to be? What was the big thing that was supposed to happen? Did it happen, or did, you know, somehow we avert it? I mean, I'm curious about the more of the details on this, but... Um, Anyway, we are up on our second break, and uh, just so you know, uh, we're going to be doing our sermon review talking about narcissistic evangelism. This is a crazy sermon that I'm about to review, and you definitely don't want to miss it. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. First sermon review of the year. And this is one of those adventures in missing the point. Man. The Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Spirit of St. Louis Church, or the Bridge Worship Experience, in Arnold, Missouri. Tom Skiles presiding. The name of the sermon is, Who's Counting on You? And this is a sermon from, literally from the word go, uh, that's supposedly about evangelism. Now, if you remember last year, I was pointing out the fact that, you know, that seeker-driven preaching has taken a very, very bad turn. <laughs> yeah, as if it wasn't bad to begin with. Uh, what I mean by that, though, is, is that uh, I'm noticing a rash of what I've labeled narcissistic eisegesis. Yeah, somehow every passage is about you. You know, even the stories about Jesus are about you. Well, how does that then affect evangelism? Well, it, let's just put it this way. If you are into narcissistic eisegesis and you're taught that this is what Christianity is all about, then evangelism isn't telling the story of Jesus. Evangelism is telling your story. Don't believe me? 
Well, <clears throat> let me uh, kill the music here. And uh, without any further ado, here's Tom Skiles in the sermon just preached a few weeks ago about evangelism entitled who's counting on you here we go and let me give you the simple definition of evangelism living your story and telling your story (laughs) that we are six seconds into the um sermon who's counting on you and uh, his definition of evangelism is living your story and telling your story Really, evangelism is all about preaching the gospel. That the evangelism is a word that finds its historical derivation or derives from uh, the Greek word euangelion or good news. And in the Christian context, that good news meant something, and it wasn't t- living and telling your story. But well, let's let him fully better develop this thought here before we dive into scripture because we're going to spend a lot more time in scripture than Tom Skiles does because well I mean if it's evangelism is telling your story you don't really need much bible do you that's evangelism you know when we get on fire for Jesus and we live our story and we tell our story Believe it or not, we're evangelizing. God doesn't have to come down and and strike you with a lightning bolt and ordain you to be an evangelist. Uh, Today, evangelists are people who have purity of heart, who have passion for Jesus, are living it, are talking it, we are breathing it. We are in and out of our community, and people see, notice, there is a difference in us. That's huge uh, for living your story. Um, The story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. This is an amazing story. You know, Jesus was the master of engaging people in conversation. How many of you are good conversationalists? All right, three of you. Great. We're already in trouble. So the story of the, the Samaritan woman at the well somehow creates the model for us telling our story? Really? Tell me more. I mean, we're dead out of the water here. Ladies, I know you talk more than that. I mean, it's statistically proven that men speak about 25,000 words a day, women 65,000 words a day with gusts up to 60 mile an hour, okay? (laughs) So, ladies, you're going to be better probably at evangelism than guys are. Uh, But evangelism certainly is us being able to communicate our story. Now, Jesus was the master at engaging people. He was unbelievable. And let me share a particular passage with you in John chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. It says this. You're going to read three verses from this story to somehow prove that evangelism is telling our story. Uh, uh Uh-huh. The Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Look how Jesus gets immediately to the point. And I love. Mm, so the reason why the story is recorded for us in the Gospel of John is so that we can get a good example from Jesus of how what a good storyteller he is and how he gets right to the point. So that when we evangelize by telling people our story, we can follow Jesus's model. Hmm. 
love how Jesus, who was a Jew and this lady was a Samaritan, so there were already dividing lines based on, based on race probably, based on gender, uh, dividing lines on gender because males back in that time were, were in authority over females. But did you notice that Jesus didn't engage any of that? He didn't engage that I'm a Jew, I'm one of God's people, and you are not. He didn't engage I'm a male and you are a female. Immediately, Jesus... I mean, seriously, I mean, you read a single, you know, well, we're up to what? One verse, maybe two in your telling of the story, and we're supposed to understand what's going on? I mean, we're literally parachuted right into the middle of this gospel written by John, and you're... We're supposed to notice, oh, what Jesus did and didn't do when we have no reference point whatsoever because you're not telling the Jesus story at all. Yet John, who wrote the Gospel of John that you're quoting from here out of context, um, who did he whose story was he telling? His own? Hmm. Let me see. We got four gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You know, these are the four biographies. Uh, that are recorded for us in the scriptures, okay? And all of them are, well, they're all based on uh, eyewitness testimony. Um, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John, those are actually eyewitness accounts, eyewitness biographies written by the person who witnessed the events. The Gospel of Luke was written by Dr. Luke, who he interviewed all of the people who saw these things and wrote his gospel accordingly, and then you have the Gospel of Mark, which uh, church history and tradition tells us were the preaching notes of the Apostle Peter. Who are these stories about? Is Matthew about Matthew? Is John about John? Is the Gospel of Mark about Mark? Is Luke about Luke? No. Luke is about Jesus. Matthew is about Jesus. John is about Jesus. Y- y- you get what I'm saying here? Um, there's a problem, and and that is is that Tom Skiles here is defined right off the bat. Evangelism is living our story and sharing our story, and that's somehow evangelism. And now he's quoting a the Gospel of John, which is about Jesus, not about you or me or my story or your story, as if somehow it gives us some kind of a guide or an outline so that we can more effectively tell our story. This isn't evangelism. This is narcissism. Jesus goes into conversation with this lady and engages her, respects her, and and speaks to her in a real way. That's the power of telling our story. You know, he was a smooth operator. JC was a smooth operator. The guy. Really, JC was a smooth operator. That's blasphemy. Serious. I knew how to go up and to share the good news of the gospel. He lived it well. He said it well. So uh, he, uh, His life story is the gospel. My life story isn't. So vitally important for us to be able to articulate our story. It's so vitally important for us to be able to speak to the heart of people. They do not care how much information you have in your head about the Bible. 
They don't care if you can quote all 66 books of the Bible. They don't care if you can quote the Torah and the Pentateuch, the first five books and the first ten books of the Bible. They don't care if you know the dispensation of the Holy Spirit and all the theology that comes with that. They don't care. I know I'm spitting out a lot of biblical jargon to you right now. No, you're not. But they don't care. What they care about is, are we going to speak to their heart? Because trust me, when you speak to someone's head, you're going to miss it every time. But when you speak to... Oh, so now we're cutting basically humanity in half. Okay, what's more important, thoughts or feelings? Hmm? Which is more important? Which could you do without? Could you do without thoughts? Or could you do without feelings? The reality is, is that we are both thinking and feeling beings. You don't pit thought against feeling. And many times, thought, uh, thoughts need to be the thing that govern our lives because feelings have a tendency to need to be reined in by something rational. So uh, so now we've got this pitting of you know, basically thoughts and feelings against each other. People don't care how much Bible knowledge you have. They just the only thing they care about is that you speak to their heart. Uh-huh. It really. Okay, so it doesn't matter if what I'm telling them is true or not as long as I engage their heart. Doesn't matter if what I'm telling them is accurate or not as long as I engage the heart. So it doesn't matter if it's really history that we're talking here regarding the life of Jesus. Oh, sorry. You know, this apparently sorry. I forgot. Evangelism isn't about Jesus, it's about me and my life, my life change. To their heart, you're going to hit a home run. Let me speak to your heart for a little bit this morning. Go ahead and try. Turn your brain off, your intellectualism. Nope, won't turn my brain off. God gave me one and he doesn't want me turning it off. By the way, if, if you hear a preacher telling you it's time for you to turn your brain off, it's time for you to literally grab your stuff and leave. Because the person who's telling you to turn your brain off is telling you to not think, is telling you to just feel or to experience, to not analyze, to not be critical, to not compare what's being said to what God's word says so that you can have some kind of a feeling or emotive experience. Run, because nothing good is about to happen here. The Bible does not pit thoughts against feelings. God gave us both. And feelings need to be governed by rational thought. Turn that off. And let's talk from the heart. Because when you are evangelizing, you are telling your story. And you're telling that story from the heart. What was Jesus doing in this passage? He was evangelizing. But by telling the story from the heart. Man, he was, he was excited. He was out there engaging people in conversation, and he was sharing the story. Here's the simple definition of evangelism. Okay, uh, well, let, let, let me get his definition out. You are relaying information of the good news of God and how he has changed your life. Has God changed your life? That's not the good news. That's not the gospel. Now, do Christians have their lives changed? Yes, they do. That is not the gospel, though. That's a that's a byproduct, of, if you would, of the gospel. And by the way, not every life change that a Christian experiences is necessarily good, at least by the way the world reckons good. What I mean by that is, is that confessing Jesus Christ as God 
as Lord, as Savior, as the only way to the Father could get you killed. The life change you could experience is going from having a breathing experience to a non-breathing experience. So you could experience a major life change as a result of becoming a Christian. Get what I'm saying here? Let's take a look at this passage, by the way. John chapter 4. We're going to uh, start at, uh, well, I'll go ahead and start at verse 1. Let's put a little bit of context in here because here we go. The three primary rules for sound biblical interpretation or understanding, if you would, is context, context, and context. Let's put the three verses that Tom Skiles here quoted out of context back into context because he's making claims about this passage uh, without ever having really read the passage. Weird, isn't it? By the way, that's one of the key uh, techniques used by false teachers. They don't read passages in context. Um, they, Instead, they're always ripping a verse out here, ripping a verse out there, and then filling in the, the in-between stuff with their own story, with their own narrative, with their own imagination, with their own doctrine, with their own ideas. They're not exegeting, they're eisegeting, and the way to make it appear like they're engaging in biblical teaching is by ripping stuff out of context, not giving you the whole story, and then creating their own story around what they ripped out of context. This is what Skiles is doing here. But let's put it back into context and we'll see what's going on here. Whose story is being told, by the way? So let's, just by way of context, let's, uh, let's remember this. This is from the Gospel of John, okay? This was written by an eyewitness, the apostle John, the disciple John, the one whom Jesus loved, John, that guy, okay? Whose story is John telling in the Gospel of John? John isn't really telling his story at all. He's telling the story of Jesus because Jesus' story is the good news, not John's story, Jesus' story. So this was written by an eyewitness, somebody who was a Jew who's telling the story of Jesus, not to give us an example or a template so we can tell our stories, but because Jesus' story is the story that needs to be told in the church, okay? So here's John writing about Jesus, not himself, and he writes, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that would be John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Now, it was about the sixth hour. Now, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, let's put a little bit of historical context around this, okay? Uh, Samaria was not a place that Jews went to, okay? Because the Samaritans had syncretized the religion, and they, they had some kernels of the truth, but these people really didn't, they weren't considered Jews by any stretch of the imagination. And there was active hostilities between Jews and Samaritans due to the fact that the Samaritans, well, they had some false doctrine that they were hanging on to. Okay, so you have that going on, and, and, and you've got uh, the fact that culturally, 
women and men don't they're not supposed to be chatting with each other so jews and samaritans don't talk women and men they're not supposed to talk you know that that could be con construed as you know <clears throat> immoral behavior so i mean there's all kinds of stuff here historically there's cultural rules that are being broken by jesus left and right number one he's they're going through samaria you're not supposed to do that as a jew jesus is doing it and so a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Immediately she's pointing out, the, you're, you, who, what? You're, you, you're asking me for a drink. You do realize I'm a female Samaritan and you're a Jew. We're not supposed to be chatting. Okay, Jesus answered her, now watch this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's thinking some kind of magic water so she'll never be thirsty again, right? Because, but Jesus is speaking on a, about something different. So Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, will wor you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews." But the hour is coming and is now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, now watch what happened here. This woman was confronted with her sin. Jesus begins by asking her to go and call her husband. She says she doesn't have a husband. Jesus explains to her why what she said is true. Why? Because she's been married and divorced five times and she's shacking up with her boyfriend at the moment. And at that, immediately she says, I perceive you're a prophet. And she changes the subject to, you know, what what's at the root of the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus even points out the fact that the Samaritans worship what they don't even know. And then points out that salvation is from the Jews. And then he begins to tell her even more about this. Okay? Now watch this. So the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, 
he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This, wow. Jesus wasn't even this direct with the Pharisees. Jesus plainly, unambiguously, and directly let her know, I am the Messiah, the promised one, the one that people were anticipating, waiting for, and expecting. Why were they waiting for and expecting and hoping for the Messiah? Why? Because the entire Old Testament is about him. The entire Old Testament keeps popping up and talking about this coming Messiah. The coming Messiah would be the seed of, of Eve, the seed of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. He was the one foretold in the very Garden of Eden who would who would crush Satan. He's prophesied throughout the, the Torah, the prophets, the history. I mean, all of, all of the Old Testament points to him. And at this point in history, they are anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And here Jesus reveals himself and speaks plainly and says, I am the Messiah to a Samaritan woman. So just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to uh, one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? So Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months when uh, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together, for here the saying holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. She hadn't experienced any life change at that point, has she? I mean, she didn't move out, and she didn't kick her boyfriend out. All Jesus did was confront her with her sin and reveal who he was, that he was the Messiah. And she had to go tell everybody about Jesus. Her testimony wasn't the testimony of her life change. Her testimony was the testimony that she was speaking with and had met and talked with the Messiah, and the Messiah was there. He was sitting right by Jacob's well. Come and see and hear. Okay, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Now, that's the whole story. That is the whole story. Jesus spends two days in Samaria. 
revealing himself as the Messiah to Samaritans, and they believe that he's the savior of the world. Who's this story about? It isn't about John, the guy who penned it. It's about Jesus. It isn't even about the Samaritan woman. She has a small role. But she hadn't experienced any life change. She hadn't been through a 12-step program. She hadn't kicked her sin habit. All Jesus did was confront her with her sin and tell her that he was the Messiah. And she had to go and tell everybody about Jesus, not herself, about Jesus, the Savior of the world. So it's interesting that Tom Skiles here is using this text the way he's using it. And I want to back this up here. Having read this in context, I want to back up the sermon a little bit, and I want you to hear how Tom Skiles is describing what Jesus is apparently doing in this passage. Because remember, I said that false teachers rip verses out of context and they create stories around the ripped out verses. See if Tom Skiles, well, his representation of what Jesus is doing in this passage fits with what we just read when we put the passage in its context. Here we go. Doing in this passage, he was evangelizing. Man, he was, he was excited. He was out there engaging people in conversation, and he was sharing the story. Here's the simple definition of evangelism. You are relaying information. Of- yeah, so what was Jesus was out there just excited to speak to the heart and engage people in conversation because this, evan- this is the great evangelism text. Uh-huh. Of the good Notice it doesn't fit with what was really going on news of God and how he has changed your life. Has God changed your life? All right. Another three people. God has changed your life. I mean, we are fired up this morning. I can tell. Has God changed you? Do you have a definitive story? Was there an impacting moment on your life? Okay. I'd like to point something out. Um, Tiger Woods, Uh, from every report that I've seen, has not converted to Christianity. He remains a Buddhist. Now, everybody knows that a while ago, a couple of years ago, uh, Tiger Woods' vice uh, became public knowledge. It was found out that uh, Tiger Woods, despite the fact that he was married and had a couple of children, um, well, had a penchant for, uh, for, well, philandering. And uh, he spent a lot of time uh, hooking up with all kinds of people, and uh, all of that came to a head, and it it came out in a very nasty and terrible public way right after Thanksgiving a couple of years ago. And what did Tiger Woods do? Well, he had he had a he had a crisis that he had to tend to, and so according to well the the media reports regarding this, Tiger Woods checked himself into a um, a program, a, a, a therapy group, if you would, for those who have sexual addiction. Okay. And he spent time in a sexual addiction recovery group and, um, and it's taken him some time, but he's experienced life change. Tiger Woods, uh, is now clean and sober on the, uh, on the womanizing front and is no longer a philandering Buddhist. Uh, he's, uh, he's a guy who's, uh, you know, cleaned up his act, 
And uh, and uh, as a result of it, you know, he struggled on the golf course. But oh, very recently, he won his first tournament uh, in, in a long, long, long time. So he's experienced life change. Who would he attribute that life change to? Would he attribute it to Jesus? No, he doesn't confess Jesus. Would he attribute it to therapy and Buddhism? Probably. Um, so because uh, Tiger Woods has experienced such dramatic life change, should I become a Buddhist? I mean, he's, he's had life change, hasn't he? Yeah, see, here's the deal. There's a reason why your story and my story or your changed life or my changed life isn't the gospel. It's because there are lots of different ways to, quote, experience life change. And just because it works to give you life change doesn't mean that it's the it's it, it, it the source is Christianity. It could be you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or just applying good advice. And when you start basically basing Christianity upon life change, in the end, it's an argument for polytheism. Because, well, Glenn Beck, I mean, he was a slobbering drunk. But thanks to Mormonism... He's now clean and sober, and he believes in the Jesus of Mormonism. So should we say, well, that was from God? No. There's lots of people who've experienced life change who were, you know, for all intents and purposes, wanton, uh, wretched sinners who caroused by day, but they've become moral and upstanding Muslims. They've experienced life change. Should their life be considered the gospel? Or is it only life change that you give Jesus the credit for helping you achieve the, the thing that matters? Why is Jesus' life change better than Buddhist life change or Muslim life change? That's not the gospel, by the way. The gospel is the story of God incarnate come to earth who lived a perfectly sinless life in your place and was crucified for your sins on a Roman cross and was raised again on the third day for your justification. The gospel is Jesus' story. And ain't nobody capable of reproducing that one. How many people do you know who are God incarnate, lived a sinless life, were crucified for the sins of the world and raised again from the dead three days after they were killed and murdered. Got anybody who's done that? Last time I checked, Buddha's still moldering in the grave. So is Muhammad. So is every other, you know, tin whistle prophet. They're all dead. Only Jesus is the one who's conquered the the grave. He's conquered death. Now, that's a story, and that's the one that we're supposed to be telling. And trust me, I'm going to speak to this here in a second. It doesn't have to be a dramatic story. It Maybe it was a gradual seed that was planted in you. And, and You know, the Jesus story is really dramatic. The whole part about him being crucified, suffering, being scourged, whipped, beaten, bruised, and punched, and spit on, and then nailed to a cross, and dying for our sins, pierced for our transgression. That's a dramatic story. And being raised again from the third day, nobody saw it coming, even though he told everybody that was what's going to happen. That's a dramatic story. Jesus' story is really dramatic. 
really, really, really dramatic. And naturally it has grown and all of a sudden you find yourself on the volunteer team or in a life group and now you're getting sucked into this vacuum that you call SOS and people are saying, don't drink the Kool-Aid. But it's, it's not even that. It's so many people wrap their minds around natural, earthly, human things. It's about Jesus. The vacuum is an SOS. The vacuum is Jesus. Well, if it's about Jesus, why don't you tell me more about his story? Why don't you tell that one instead of yours? He's drawing you. He's changing you. And as he is changing you, you tell that story to others. Even if you have been saved for 15 years, you shouldn't be in the same place next year that you were last year. And you should be able to tell that story. I mean, if you're... So apparently your progressive sanctification now becomes the gospel. Yeah, right. If you've been saved for 15, 20 years and you're moving backward in your church and you don't have a story to tell, shame on you. Yeah, I'm not interested in telling my story. Jesus' story is the one that matters. Mine isn't. And I would go again with the apostles' uh, you know, example here. You know, Again, church history tells us that the gospel of Mark... Uh, where the that was the preaching notes of the apostle Peter, and let's see who who Peter uh, preached about. Let's see here. Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the opening verse to the gospel of Mark, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths, uh, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts, wild honey. He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now notice here in verse 15, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is not pointing to his life change and saying, repent and look, look at what a difference God has made in my life. Jesus was sinless. He didn't have life change like that. Jesus doesn't have a testimony that goes along the lines of, like that at all. He was the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So he's not pointing to life change as the good news. He's pointing to himself. Repent and believe the good news. 
Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make, and you will become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they came and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And when they came into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him, and said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went out throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus touched a leper. This would have made Jesus unclean, right? And he said to him, I will be clean and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean and jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him see that you say nothing to anyone but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what moses commanded for a proof to them but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. So Jesus was at his home in Capernaum. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wow. 
What an amazing story. Who is this Jesus? And look, he even forgives sins. See, I've got a sin problem, and so do you. Do you think that this Jesus can forgive your sins the way he forgave the sins of this paralytic? So freely, without any works, just declared him forgiven. I bet this Jesus can forgive you of your sins too. And Jesus said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except for God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Right. Who did Peter preach about? Jesus. Whose story did he tell? Not his own. Peter always plays a bit role, has few cameo appearances, and even his appearances in these gospel stories are pathetic. These are the stories of Jesus. The good news, the gospel is the story of Jesus. It's not your life that's the gospel. It's his life. He's the one to where we can say, we've never seen anything like this. Have you read the story of Jesus? Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and was raised again on the third day? That's an amazing story that has never been matched in all of human history. That's dramatic. That's amazing. That is the story that we are to be telling because that is the good news. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. But literally, that God took our sins upon himself. Because that's who Jesus is, God. And died for your sins and mine. Compare what I just read and what I just told you. The story that I told you from the eyewitnesses to what Tom Skiles is telling us that we should be doing. And tell me, who's right? Because both of us can't be. We can't both be right. Either I'm right and the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done, or Tom Skiles is right, and the gospel is, well, your story. Which is it? You're missing it. Because it's so important that we have passion for each and every day that we live our life for Christ. 
and that people can see the passion that is inside of us, that we can tell our story. It's so vitally important for a church community to be on fire with evangelism. I'm telling you right now, I pray over this church all the time, and here's what I pray. God set us on fire. It was the great evangelist, D.L. Moody, who quoted the phrase, if you set yourself on fire, people will come and watch you burn. They're attracted to people who are on fire. And when God does something amazing in someone's life, you, this charisma comes on the inside of you and you, you get excited about God and you get just filled up with God's presence. And you can do that in a real way. You don't have to speak in some other language to prove that you have this. You don't have to jump up and down and act radical. Just be passionate for Jesus. I mean, some people do. And I grew up in a church, it was, like a, it was like a pep rally every Sunday. People swinging from the chandeliers. It was great. It was like people smoked crack before they come into the service. Holy Spirit filled crack, I don't know. It was crazy. But, but listen, it was exciting. They were passionate. But we don't, have to, we don't reach people with those tactics. We reach people by sharing our story. We reach people by showing them the passion. And here's what Paul wrote. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 9 through 13. Now listen, we're a community of believers. And Paul was speaking to the community of believers, but he spoke about a gift called evangelism. In the Message Bible, he says this, it's true, is it not, that the one who climbed up also climbed down. He's referring to Jesus coming from heaven, coming down to earth, down to the valley of earth. And the one who climbed down is the one who climbed back up, up to the highest heaven. He handed out gifts above and below. Filled heaven with his gifts, filled earth with his gifts. He handed out gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher to train Christians in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church, until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other. I love that. Efficient and graceful in response to God's son. Fully mature adults. Fully developed within and without. Fully alive in Christ. Boy, if there was ever a verse that communicated what we desire here at SOS Church, you're looking at it. When God's people become fully engaged, fully mature, fully developed, um, things change. And when they change, we tell our story. Our family and friends and community, they are counting on us. People are counting on you. There are people who are watching us. There are people in our work. There are people in our home. Our husbands, wives, our children are watching everything that we do. Yeah, that's right. And I guarantee you, your husbands, teachers, wives, coworkers, all of them know that you're a sinner. And if you try to make your life change the gospel, they're all going to go, yeah, well, apparently you haven't changed enough because you're still a jerk. My, um, I remember so vividly, my wife and I, we went to my mom and dad's church and they had a little surprise for all the parents. It was like a honoring parents day, but they had our kids. They had Gavin, I believe it was, Abby was too young, but Gavin and a couple of my older brother's kids and they get up and they sing this song in front of the entire church. And the song goes like this. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. So don't disappoint me. I see everything you do. That just immediately, I'm feeling so convicted at that point. 
Because I think I remember a tirade I had that morning and both of my kids were watching me. Right, because your life isn't the gospel. You are the sinner and who needs to receive and believe the good news. Uh, what a disappointment that we can be. Right, because we're sinners. See, it's more than just speaking words about you being saved. It's living the life that God would want us to live. Uh-huh. So apparently your keeping of the law becomes the gospel. But boy, you really are not very good at it, are you? Are you ashamed to tell your story out in public? You know, when we're living it and we're telling it, God is going to move in that. I love the story of Tim Tebow. Now, many of you football people will understand who I'm talking about when I say Tim Tebow. He is a Christian. He has always professed his faith. But Katie Mumford sent me an amazing article about Tim Tebow. In the, in the 2009 college championship, Tim Tebow put John 3.16 on the blackouts under his eyes in vivid letters. And during that college championship, he wore that on his blackouts. During that game, 93 million people Googled the verse and read the verse. And John 3.16 isn't about Tim Tebow. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 is about Jesus, not Tim Tebow. You want to talk about evangelism, the power of someone sharing Jesus Christ with others. That's very powerful. And listen, we do not have to be scared of evangelism. Evangelism is a scary word, isn't it? It's scary because our society is skeptical of, of, of people who share their story now. You're yeah, um, hmm, yeah. Maybe it's scary because uh, telling my story, I just know it. Just, my story isn't powerful enough to save anybody, anywhere, for anything. Um, yeah, um, my story is that I'm the problem. The gospel story, though, tells me that Jesus is the solution. I can talk about Jesus. Man, I can tell that story. That's a story worth telling. My story, not so much. Your friends are skeptical when a change happens in you. People are skeptical, and they're afraid of that story. That's why evangelism is scary. Evangelism brings up all kinds of negative feelings because we've seen evangelism done so wrong. Well, if you think evangelism is telling my story, well, then, yeah, that's evangelism gone wrong. I mean, we've, we've seen many bad ways to evangelize. We've seen people talk down to us, look down their nose at us, knock on our door and throw a gospel track in our face. We've, we've had a lot of different pushy and obnoxious church people try to push God upon us. So evangelism has become a, a, a crazy word. But even if the church, and I'm speaking to the universal church, even if we have gotten it wrong in the past, isn't it our obligation, SOS, to find ways to retrofit, to, to take this all-important spiritual discipline and fit it into our modern day? Isn't it our obligation? And how do we do that? We keep it real. We speak. Right. Keep it real. Preach about Jesus, just like Peter did, just like John did, just like Matthew did, just like Paul did. Preach about Jesus. Tell his story. To the heart. 
And it's time that we be getting this right. It's time that we, we understand how to do evangelism in the right way. You know, some things I wouldn't recommend. I wouldn't recommend, you know, you, you, you kind of going up to someone and saying, hello, evangelist Skiles, nice to meet you. Now, I know I'm telling you you're an evangelist today, but don't, don't, get that, don't put that in front of your name, okay? It's important to keep it real. And also, here's another thing I don't recommend. You can't be like Jesus. I'm just going to tell you that right now. I know the Bible says that we should be like Jesus, but what the Bible is talking about is us just being real about the Jesus inside of us. Please don't try to use the king's language. The Jesus inside of us? What Jesus is that? when you're trying to talk to people. I mean, if you're doing that, it's going to go horribly wrong for you. Jesus ministered to the Samaritan woman. He said, would you give me a drink? If you knew of what I had to offer you, I would give you living waters. I can envision some, someone going to Taco Bell, waiting at the fountain soda area, and then looking at someone and saying, would you give me a drink? <laughs> what are you talking about, sir? If you knew of the water I had to give you, you would be, you'd never thirst again. That kind of stuff doesn't work. You know, we can't be like Jesus in that particular arena and in that area. And another thing, I want you guys to understand, you don't have to beef up your story. Oftentimes, we feel like we have to put more, more teeth to our story so that, it's, so that people enjoy it more. Uh, my story isn't the gospel. It's Jesus' story that's the gospel. And you don't have to do that. Yeah, I got saved when I was in the third grade. I got kicked out of third grade for not shaving. And, and then I started peddling Skittles during recess for ma- making money, racketeering. And, and then, you know, you don't have to do any of that. It's all right. It's all right. And also, you don't have to make your story dramatic. Oftentimes, we try to make our story... Vi- the great part about evangelism is I don't have to tell my story at all. I can tell Jesus' story. That's it very dramatic. I mean, you know, you don't have to be the stripper that got saved. You don't have to be a pimp. You don't have to be a rock and roller. Although, believe it or not, I was the rock and roller that got saved, okay? So I got a pretty cool story about that. I'll tell you that some other time. I'm sure you'd love to tell your story. Why aren't you telling us Jesus' story? Weird, isn't it? But you don't have to do that. You don't have to go out there and do that. You don't have to say, well, I was, you know, dancing around that pole and <laughs> Instead of somebody throwing me money, they threw me a gospel track, and I read it, and I got saved. That's a pretty dramatic story. You know, not all of us fall into that category. It's very cool to hear. But all of us fall into the category of sinner in need of a Savior. And the story of Jesus is the good news that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. That's the good news for all of us sinners, regardless of the variety or the particular penchants that your sin nature uh, decides to manifest itself. Someone's dramatic story. But oftentimes we don't tell ours because we think, well, my story is just ordinary. Let's talk about telling stories. We relate to stories. Well, this is true. You know, information passes through us. Nah, that's not true. But stories stick to us. That's why God communicated with a story. Because you can get all the information you want, but a story, it, it sticks. 
Yeah, it's funny. You know, when you read the Bible, you find that there's sections that are story, and there's sections that, well, read more like theological information and doctrine. Hmm. Weird that God used both, don't you think? To the heart. And the sad thing is, most of us today, we are getting our stories through the entertainment from television. I don't even know what this means. I mean, call me old-fashioned, but how long has it been since we sat on the front porch in our rocking chairs with our lemonade, so to speak, and sat down with people and just told stories? And just shared stories. Um, it's probably been a long time. I remember, you know, when I was younger, TV wasn't nearly as prevalent as it is now. You certainly couldn't find it above a 25-inch. You didn't get it in HD. It was analog. You had this coax cable that was that wide coming out of your wall to get it. And, and you didn't have access to 175 channels, you know, when I, when I was, I mean, I'm sure some of you are here and you remember when you, there was only three channels, that means you're really old, okay? But, but, but I remember 13, 15, 20 channels, we thought we were on top of the world. Now there's 175 channels. Now there's so many channels we don't know what to do with. Um, and, and there's still, absolutely still nothing to watch on TV. It's amazing like that. But, but, but it's so important. We, we have shows about everything. Shows about animals. Shows about people. Shows about animals that eat people. We have shows about all this stuff. I Survived. That's a show about animals that eat people. Every t- I love that show. Every time I watch that show, a bear is eating someone and they survive it. So it's a pretty crazy show. But we have shows about everything. And these fictitious and non-fictitious fictitious storylines, they become a part of us. They stick to us. Here's why. We're getting our storyline from entertainment, from culture, from TV. Oftentimes, it's, it's why husband and wife don't engage in the evenings when we come home from work. We're not interested in each other's stories. We're getting our storylines from, from TV. And you might be thinking, well, that's not true. Listen, I know it's true. Stories. What does he mean by we're getting our storylines from TV? <sighs> Okay, yeah, I'm getting my storyline from TV, apparently. I don't even know what this means. Stick with you. And oftentimes we get most of our stories from those particular things. And here's, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to say a quote to you guys. And you're going to tell me what movie it is. You ready for this? How does, I mean, how does if I know a movie uh, quote prove that I'm getting my storyline from TV? I mean, what does it mean to get my storyline from something? I don't even know what that means. TV has become the stories we listen to. Here's one. You can't handle the truth. A few good men. You guys are great. There's no crying in baseball. Man, wow. Yeah, stories don't stick to us like that. You had me at hello. That was a tough one. Nobody puts baby in the corner. That's my favorite one. When someone's abusing my wife or mistreating my wife, if my brother Mikey is, is you know, <laughs> aggravating my wife because he does it all the time, I come up to him and say, nobody puts baby in the corner. <laughs> he knows not to mess with me at that point. <laughs> how about this one? Inconceivable. Princess Bride. Princess Bride. Look how they massacred my boy. Look how they... Ma- if you don't get this one, I'm going to be upset, guys. Look how they massacred my boy. The Godfather. Come on, guys. <laughs> I am very disappointed in every male that calls himself a male in this room right now. 
your assignment is to go home and watch Godfather 1, 2, and 3 and report back to me. How about this one? Bueller? 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 (laughs) Nothing more needs to be said. And in the morning, I'm making waffles. What's that? Everybody knows Shrek. Now, here's an old one. I'm dating myself. I'm going to bust you up. Go for it. Rocky Rocky 3. And the last one, hasta la vista, baby. Everybody knows Arnold Schwarzenegger. Listen, I've I've proven our appetites are insatiable for stories. Now, we can communicate movies with passion and with articulation. Why are we not telling our story? Uh, Because we're not called to tell my story, your story, whosoever story. The apostles told the story of Jesus. You want to engage people with a story that's worth engaging them with? Even better than a movie story? Engage them with the story of Jesus. The whole Bible's about him. Wow. uh, So we're getting a guilt. Why aren't you making your story as uh, memorable as a movie? Tell your story. No, tell Jesus' story. With the same kind of passion and zeal. And this is what we have to learn how to do. You know, it's what- No, we don't. The apostles didn't even do that. They told Jesus' story. What we do when we talk to each other. When you sit down and have lunch with a lady friend, ladies, and you go over to Panera Bread and you're having your warm lattes and you're, you're talking to one another, you're not just exchanging information. You're telling stories. The women do it much better than the men. When women sit down to have coffee and tell stories, they really engage in one another. They are very detail-oriented. When men do it, it's like, what's up? Doing great. How's the job? Great. Car running well? You bet. Hey, man, great luncheon. We'll catch you later. We'll see you next week. (laughs) We have to get better at telling our stories. No, we don't. We got to get better at telling the story of Jesus, the one that's recorded for us in Scripture. Don't just pass on information about your story when God has done so much in you. We have to become better storytellers. Your story ain't the gospel. It's a false gospel if you you think that's what the gospel is. And and I understand some of you aren't very good storytellers. I think of my, my daughter, Abby. She is not a very good storyteller, but she's a very detailed storyteller. She'll come home from school, and she's, the, she's what I would call the TMI, too much information. I'm scared to ask her what happened at school because I'm going to get the play-by-play from the time she got on the bus. By the way, I think it's safe to assume we're done with the Bible in this sermon at this point because, yeah, Jesus was just used as an example of a storyteller. Rather than telling Jesus' story, we just looked at the Jesus story to see where Jesus told stories so that we can know that we need to tell stories about ourselves us until the time she got home she's going to tell me what the bus driver was wearing what the kid said behind the seat a kid stuck bubble gum in another kid's ear she's going to tell me what her teacher was wearing and here's the important thing she's going to tell me everything she had for lunch (laughs) and that is all important so tmi with her my son gavin's not a very good storyteller he is in mi no not much information that's gavin Hey, how was school today? Great. Okay. How was basketball practice? Great. 
What did the coach do? He ran us hard. That's all I get, no matter how hard you try. Now, let me tell you one more really bad storyteller. Now, he's great with drama, but he's horrible at telling stories. My brother-in-law, Sherman, is a horrible storyteller. And let me tell you why. I'm just doing this for Mikey and I because we have to endure his Sunday afternoon stories, 30-minute stories that lead us absolutely nowhere, chocked full of drama, but no point. Absolutely no point. He'll be like, I was driving down the highway and this trucker passes by and he looks at me funny. And I'm thinking, what's this guy looking at me funny for? And then all these things are rolling through my head as he's looking at me and all of a sudden my cell phone blows up. It's crystal. So I try to answer the phone and this trucker's bearing down on me. And then I look over to my right and there's Mike Kinder. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Where's, okay. That's great, Sherm. Where's the story? This is how he does things. You know, um, the God's people, the Jews, historically, they knew how to tell stories. If you look at biblical history, the Greeks were the intellectual ones, but the Jews, they were the heart. They knew how to tell a story. The Greeks could communicate through philosophy and through books, and they were intellectual. And they could reach a person's head, but the Jews could reach a person's heart. There's a difference. See, because when you reach someone's heart, the story sticks to them. But when you reach someone's head, the information passes through them. And it is, it's the basic principle of getting to someone's heart. Marketers know this all too well. You see, all of the marketers, the television marketing, the, the over Christmas you've been subjected to, all of this marketing They know how to tell a story. Flo from Progressive knows how to tell a story. That chick is great. I have Progressive because of her. I believe in her. They know how to tell a story. They know how to get to your heart. It's the basic principle. When you see that that car dealer commercial for that truck that is three-quarter ton with towing power, they can convince you that you need to buy that truck because you need to carry a load of bricks to kids in orphaned areas so that you can build a school for them. They'll do these types of things to, to pull at your heart and to tug at your heart. Apple is great at communicating to you, you really need that iPhone 4S so that you can IM your dying grandmother who you can't go and see all the time. I mean, this is the way that we tell stories when we're marketing. We go after the heart. They understood how to do that. God communicated his message through a story. He is the master marketer. If God communicated his message through a story, and he did, and God's the master marketer, then why aren't you telling the story that God communicated in his word? Hmm? Why is it that you're having us jettison that and replace it with our story rather than the story that God told? Hmm? How is it that you would think that your story could somehow supplant or supersede or become more important to tell than the story that God told in Scripture? Hmm? He understood that the story must be communicated and that he couldn't just pass on biblical information. But the story of Jesus is a story that is filled with with drama, with climax, with intensity, but it is a story that sticks to us. 
It goes straight to the heart. Jesus died for you. And- yeah, he did. And yeah, that's the story we're supposed to tell. But why is it that you keep you know, throwing that in without really ever explaining that that's the story we're supposed to be telling? And listen, once you get courage to tell your story, man, God just opens up a world to you. Don't be a CIA Christian. Don't be an undercover Christian, but get comfortable with telling your story. See, the enemy lies to us because the enemy will tell us you're uneducated and unfit to tell your story. The enemy will tell you you don't know enough about your Bible to tell your story. The enemy will tell you that... that yeah, yeah, remember the, the, uh, <clears throat> some of Jesus' disciples, the guys he chose, uh, these were uh, ordinary fishermen, not exactly lettered people. And uh, Jesus chose them as his disciples to tell his story, not our story, but his. You get what I'm saying here? Let's continue. That you shouldn't be sharing your story. And then the minute someone tries to intellectually challenge us, we back down. But no one can argue with the change that God has made in your heart. That is the that is the death assumption right there. Man, that is the weakness in this whole argument. No one can argue with the change that's been made in your heart. Great. Then I can't argue with the change that was made in Tiger Woods' heart or Glenn Beck's or anybody else's. Buddha must be true. Islam must be true. See, your life change is weak as a convincing point for Christianity. It's pathetic. Why? Because a whole lot of people have had a whole lot of life change. But weird, ain't nobody ever been raised from the dead except for Jesus Christ. Christianity does not hinge on your life change. It hinges on whether or not the tomb was empty on the third day. We continue. No one can argue with that. Yeah, they can. And they do. And that's the power of of you being confident about your story. Another lie from the enemy is that your story is ordinary. Your story isn't interesting. But it's time for us to re-engage and challenge ourselves that God is doing so many things in our lives. Uh, for those of you that will take this challenge, I would love for you to go home and think about this. If you're taking your faith seriously, try to write your story down in a hundred words or less. <sighs> try to write your story. Good night. It's a great challenge. I don't need to do that. The story of Jesus is the gospel, and it's already been written down for me. I need to read it, study it, mark it, inwardly digest it, and be able to communicate it lucidly to people. Call them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins because of their crucified and risen Savior. This is nonsense. I don't need to go home and write down my story in 100 words or less or 200 words or less. My story ain't the gospel. A hundred words or less, write your story on paper of how God has changed you. See if you can do that. And and, and when you are asked or when someone approaches you, you'll know how to answer to them. And you'll know how to respond in a confident way. You know, it's okay to have a boring conversion story. The key is that we live the story, that we tell the story. So as I'm wrapping this up, what I want to do is I want to share with you, and we're going to have some of our skit people come up, and they're going to be helping us today. Some of our- 
So now we're going to have a few skits demonstrating the pitfalls and things not to do when telling your story and under the guise of this is somehow evangelism. Oh, good night. Grab the popcorn and maybe something to drink. Our creative team and creative members, they're going to be helping us to share with you what not to do. Because I know it's not enough for me to just tell you what not to do. We need to show you exactly how this plays out and what not to do when you're sharing your story. That's the thing not to do. The thing not to do, the, what not to do is tell your story. The thing to do is tell Jesus' story, period. So the first story that we want to kind of communicate to you guys, have you ever sat down with someone that is a TMI person? TMI, too much information. If someone is asking you to share your conversion story, please don't take them all the way back to when you were in your mother's womb, okay? And all the way through kindergarten to college to everywhere else. Uh, share with... You know what's interesting about the gospel, though? Is it that the gospel story about Jesus does take us all the way back to when he was in his mommy's womb, even before, because his mommy was the Virgin Mary. And we got the announcement from the angel Gabriel that God, the Holy Spirit, was going to overshadow Mary and that she was going to conceive Jesus literally, even though she was still a virgin. So that what may be conceived in her and was born would be called the Son of God. So isn't it weird? I mean, he, he's saying now, when you're telling your story, don't go all the way back to when you were in the womb. Yet the Jesus story, hmm, the gospel story uh, does include that data. Isn't that weird? Just, you know, want to make that little note. With them, the heart things of why God has changed you. And we're going to show you an example of the TMI story. Wow, <laughs> I am thrilled that you would ask because it's actually a really fascinating story. Um, so I grew up with this aunt, and I just loved her and loved her. <laughs> she was such a cool lady, but she would always drag me to church, and I hated church. Hated church, <laughs> you know, but she was cool, you know. She was a cheerleader in high school. I was a cheerleader in high school. I don't know if you know this, but I actually went to Northeastern State on a full-ride scholarship. <laughs> Go Tigers! So before the whole college thing, um, my family moved to Tucson. <laughs> Hate the weather, love the city. And um, that's actually where I met my first husband. Um, you know, we were high school sweethearts. <laughs> we just kind of fell in love right off the bat. Well, actually, hilarious story. I first fell in love with his best friend. <laughs> oh, it's a riot. I will spare you the whole details. Well, I'll just give you the quick version. So there we were in the park riding our bikes and... Um, I just got kind of uh, a uh, kind of the obvious question to ask. Um, if the gospel is telling my story, um, why couldn't I tell all the gruesome details like this? Why would this be considered bad? I mean, if the gospel is all about my life change, I got to give all the details I can so that everybody can understand the nuance of my story. <laughs> pint of fluid off my right knee. I told my husband right then and there, we are never going bungee jumping in Mexico again. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
that was the moment. You know, the moment when um, when God came into my life and, wow, I, I've never been the same, <laughs> you know? Yeah, notice, no mention of Jesus, no mention of the cross, no mention of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, no mention of an empty tomb, no mention of a virgin birth, nothing. No, it's just, I was just, you know, living my life and uh, somehow, you know, after my second husband found myself in Mexico bungee jumping and that's how God came into my life. Yeah, what's missing from this story? Oh yeah, Jesus is. It ain't the gospel if it's about you. Wow. Oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I just, I get so excited about all this. I just sort of, wow, spit it all out. All right. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> uh, the TMI story. Listen, if your story has 15 different characters in it, including the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in three different plot changes, then maybe it's time to reconsider how you're telling your story. Yeah, weird because, you know, the, uh, the, the gospel stories about Jesus recorded for us in the New Testament, each and every one of them has more than 15 characters. Isn't that weird? You know, lots of detail there from the eyewitnesses who are telling the story about Jesus. A lot more than 15 characters. Hmm, interesting. Your story is so vitally important to your DNA. It's vitally important to who you are. If you have had a heart change, then speak to the heart of someone else because they desire that heart change. They're not looking for a bunch of jargon. They're looking to be led to Christ. So how is it that your story somehow leads people to Christ? If you're going to tell people about Christ then you tell them about Christ. That's how you lead them to Christ, by talking about Jesus and what he's done. Not in my life, but in history. Through your story. And you don't have to come out and just try to push it on them. I mean, I know so many people that they come out and they just try to push their story on others. It's amazing, church people. Church people blow my mind because they, they push their story on others. And they do it in the wrong way. You ever heard of the term Christianese? Christianese. It's kind of like Chinese. And here's what it looks like. It's when people speak church language. They don't speak real language to someone outside of our walls, but they speak church language. And no one understands Christianese. But we love learning new words in church and then taking it outside and impressing someone with the new words that we have learned. So let's see a perfect example of what Christianese looks like. Our guys are going to come up and share that. So, Jeff, I, uh, I know that you are really pumped up about this God thing going on right now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about it? This is just such a blessing to be able to share this with you. You know, I have been seeking the Lord's face about this very thing. Well, I guess it started with me whenever I was born. You know, born for a second time. Born again. And I knew at that point that I knew that I had to have the Lord come and, and live inside of me and, and I had to become a brand new type of creature in order for that to happen. And 
Well, you can't put new wine in old wineskins, can you? <laughs> well, I, know, I knew that the old me had to die, and the new me had to be resurrected. And I knew then, whenever that happened, I, I started to understand that the blessings of Abraham, they were mine. They were mine. And at that point, I started to, get, I started to get a little excited because I knew that no longer was the curse of the law against me. I knew that. And then I knew the good thing about it is that the gospel, the gospel says that you can have the same thing. And I knew that, you know what? I bet that in, the, in 30 seconds or less that I could have you washed in the blood. Uh, hey, Jeff, is this going to hurt? <laughs> All right. A perfect example of Christianese um, and how important it is for us to speak a language that people understand and just tell our... Yeah, you, that's the great thing about the gospel stories about Jesus. It's pretty simple language written by pretty ordinary guys telling an extraordinary story about the Son of God. <sighs> story from the heart. Now, one more example we want to give you before we close. Have you ever had someone that told you a weird God story? And a weird God story is basically this. I'm a firm believer that God takes us to new levels. And I believe in the, the presence of God. And I believe that when I'm alone with God, there are supernatural, powerful experiences to be had with God. But if God... Yeah, that's great, Nolly. You got any Bible verses that say that? God takes you to the fifth dimension... <laughs> Um, it's often important for you not to share that with everyone or if you have a, a powerful experience because it could be misconstrued and it could, maybe people don't understand sometimes when the presence of God is working. Oh, just go over to Patricia King's website and tell them your story. They might put you on camera so you can tell the world. In our life, that is hard to explain sometimes. I believe in the power of God. I believe that God changes lives, but be careful about how you explain your God story when God has done something uh, crazy dramatic in your life. And we want to see what that looks like. You know, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I know that you're real involved with your church, and, mm -hmm. and God really means a lot to you. Mm -hmm. I am curious. Tell me, what, what's that all about? Jeff, are you ready to have your mind blown? Sure. June 21st, 2003, it was the summer solstice. I had just gone and bought the newest installment of the Harry Potter collection. I went back to my studio apartment and I poured myself some breakfast. I'm really a fan of uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Do you know that cereal? It looks like the little toast. It's got this yeah. one. You know, it's quite good. Try it if you have a chance. Anyway, so as I'm sitting there eating, I pour the milk. I go for my first bite. I'm now entering into the entryway of Hogwarts. I take my first bite. I completely enjoy it. As I go for the second, I look down, and in my spoon, there is, seems to be an abnormal toast. So I, with a slight twist of the hand, just as I did that, I'm looking, light literally comes through the window, hits the milk just perfectly. All right, Jeff? Now, I am sitting here looking at none other. You're not going to believe this. It, I'm looking in the eyes of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. That is unbelievable. No, listen, listen. The cinnamon swirls, I'm telling you, they made a perfect outline, okay? Perfect outline. I saw everything. The hair, the beard. The 
Okay, got a question for you. If the, the gospel's all about telling my story, then and if this is part of my story, why shouldn't I tell this part? Right? I mean, you know, I mean, this is a miraculous story here that's, that this miracle confirms that my story is the good news, right? The shawl. Jesus. So then, right then and there, Jeff, I drop my spoon, I go to my knees, and then for some reason, I got this tingling in my hip area. It was really weird. Just really, can't, uh, can't explain it to this day. So anyway... Right then and there, I cry out to God, have mercy on me, God. Well, ever since then, I have served him from that day forward. Crazy, isn't it? Now, do you want to hear the craziest part of that entire story, Jeff? No, I don't. I'm going to tell you anyway. As soon as I get back into my chair, I look into that bowl, and you know what had happened? That milk had turned to wine. Check, please. All right. Thank you, guys. What an amazing uh, example of telling our stories. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Um, the important thing that we take away from this today is, in closing, in conclusion, speak from the heart. You know, that's the best thing you can do is live your story, tell your story, make that story concise. Just share. How- Cue sappy music. How God has changed you. Whether you were that ex-rock and roller or you were that person that had a dramatic conversion or maybe you're the person that seed was just slowly planted in your life and in God, the root of, of Jesus has grown in your heart and you've changed over the seasons. They're equally great stories because they involve change and they involve Jesus. How do they involve Jesus again? I am confused because... Jesus barely makes any cameo appearances in these life change stories. I mean, he, you know, yeah, he gets credit, but I mean, I'm not exactly sure where he hooks up and connects in the stories that are being told. But isn't it weird because the gospel stories, they all tell about Jesus and the things he said and did and taught, how he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, was raised again on the third day. You know, all for our salvation. Hmm. Weird. Yeah. The, you're, by the way, if the if the gospel is your story, it's a false gospel, and you're sending people to hell with it. Just saying. So maybe you're here, and, and, and you're intimidated to share your story. You don't know how to share your story. I would encourage you, as you go home today or go, you know, this week, get some time alone, pray to God. Think about your story. Think about what you have to offer to others. I have nothing to offer except for Jesus and his story, what he's done. Others that are around you and live your story and tell your story. Now, really quickly, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if someone is here and you maybe you don't know Jesus, I want to give you... So at the very end, if you don't know Jesus, he's going to give you the opportunity to pray. Yeah, How is it that anybody showing up to that service would know anything about Jesus at all? What, there was three verses from the Gospel of John out of context? They don't know nothing about Jesus except for, supposedly, I need him so that I can have this life change so that I can tell everybody my story. 
So this is what happens when you start reading the Bible narcissistically and eisegetically. Narcissistic eisegesis, reading yourself into the story, somehow the Bible being about you and your story. Uh, evangelism then turns into narcissistic evangelism. This isn't the gospel. This isn't the story we're supposed to tell. This is way off topic. I mean, to say it's 180 degrees off topic is like, I don't even think that's a strong enough metaphor. This is the difference between light and darkness, truth and error. This is the difference between a gospel that sends people to hell and the gospel that releases people from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil and, and makes them citizens in king, uh, of the kingdom of God. Your story is not capable of releasing somebody from the power of the devil. Only Jesus' story can do that. We're not called to tell our stories. We're called to tell Jesus' story, to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name, to preach his word, not our stories. This is dangerously satanic. It is I-centered, not Christ-centered. And that's what's majorly wrong with much of Christianity today. Ay, ay, ay. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, our first for the year. Um, so just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio, and uh, if you don't already support our uh, program, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, uh, and there you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them and support the program, and thank you, thank you, thank you for all of you who've uh, supported us over the years and months and uh, made it, make it possible for us to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you into the world. So what'd you think? You know, I, you know what I thought. I'd I'd love to get your feedback. I mean, do you think that the gospel is your story? Are you offended by what I've pointed out here and think that I've given Tom Skiles an unfair shake? Well, make your case. Send me an email. I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to contact me, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. That's the story we're supposed to tell. Amen. Amen.